morning we're talking about the missing ingredients in prayer. And we're going to use that passage in Philippians as well as a couple of others. Look at the introduction and then the peace of Christ that passes all understanding, true worship, and then thanksgiving. And this morning we want to begin by asking ourselves the question, how much do we really know about prayer? Back in the days when the Chicago Bears were a football powerhouse, Mike Singletary, all-pro linebacker and an outspoken Christian, was leading the chapel service. And as he began to speak, he asked William Perry, a guy known as the refrigerator for his size and poundage, to lead the group in the Lord's Prayer after he was finished. Jim McMahon, the quarterback, was sitting in the rear next to the team chaplain. He whispered to the chaplain, take a look at Perry. The chaplain looked and he saw that Perry was sweating profusely. McMahon continued, he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. The chaplain responded, of course he does. Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. McMahon showed the chaplain a $50 bill and said, I'll bet you 50 bucks he doesn't know it. Finally, Singletary finished his message. And Perry, with great hesitation, stood up, cleared his throat, and in a faltering voice said, Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. With that, McMahon turned to the chaplain, handed him the 50 bucks, and said, Man, I didn't think he knew it. (laughs) Well, I trust that some of us know it a little better than that. But even those who do know it may still be plagued by an ineffective prayer life. This morning, we want to grasp the fact that productive prayer is more than reciting the Lord's Prayer or any other prayer. We want to find out what the ingredients might be that could be missing in our prayer. Many times we hear people say, I prayed about that and nothing happened. Prayer is the language of the kingdom of God. So we want to be very proficient in speaking the language. First question we need to ask, after that one we've already asked, is if Christians have the privilege of speaking anytime, anywhere, to an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God, then why would the devil be so successful in bombarding us with anxious thoughts about anything and everything. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones addresses the issue in his commentary on Psalm 42. He talks about outsiders who observe how unhappy most Christians are. And he says, and I quote, they, the outsiders, say, look at Christian people. Look at the impression they give. And they are very fond of contrasting us with people out in the world. They are very fond of contrasting us, Christians, with people out in the world. People who seem to be so thrilled by the things they believe in, whatever they may be. They shout at their football games. They talk about the movies they've seen. They're full of excitement. They want everybody to know it. But Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give the appearance of unhappiness and of a lack of freedom and absence of joy. There's no question at all but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. 
Well, why is that? How can the enemy be so effective in hitting Christians with those depressing and discouraging thoughts? Perhaps there's something missing down inside our hearts. Now we're going to begin here with Colossians 3 and verses 1 and 2. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on th- minds on things above, not on earthly things. And many times in Scripture, the heart and the mind would be used synonymously. And we think in our heart. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. When we say set your hearts on things above, we're not talking about the golden streets and a choir of angels singing the Hallelujah Chorus and pearly gates maybe. But we're talking about the kind of character that we would experience in heaven. That's the kind of character we want to be living down here through the power of Christ. We want to be thinking about things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report, things that are virtuous and praiseworthy. Those are the kind of things that we want to meditate on as well as a few other things that we will consider. Verses 15 and 16 In the same passage, Colossians 3, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Here comes thanksgiving. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts toward God. You recognize the heading there that's in that verse. If you have a Bible, you ought to underline in Colossians 3, be thankful and gratitude in your hearts. So perhaps one of the missing ingredients would be the peace of Christ in our hearts. If that's true, and if we know Christ, we truly know Him, how do we get that peace in our hearts so that as Christians we wouldn't give the impression of being so unhappy, so cast down, so disquieted about circumstances and things that are going on in our lives. Now obviously there is a time to grieve and there is a time to be sorrowful. Paul said on one occasion that he was sorrowful yet rejoicing. And there are always things about which to rejoice and be thankful in the midst of our sorrow. Jesus reminds us that his peace is different from the peace of the world. Familiar passage, John 14:27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Personal peace in the Bible means a sense of togetherness, wholeness, and completeness on the inside. Have you ever heard something like this? Oh my, he's falling apart. She is just coming to pieces. This guy is coming unglued. She is coming apart at the seams. Going to pieces means that inwardly we don't have that sense of togetherness. We have a feeling of everything is out of control. We have that chaotic feeling that comes when we just don't know what we're going to do. That usually comes when there's something outwardly that's happening 
that has caused us to be disconcerted as something that we didn't want to happen. Augustine defined God's peace as a tranquility of order. There's structure and order in our hearts as we understand that God is on the throne, we are His children, He's watching over us, and He has ordained a path in which we are to walk, and with His strength we'll be able to do what He calls us to do. Now, how do you let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts? We've heard this many times, win the battle for your heart and for your mind. Think the thoughts that are going to be pleasing to God, and the result will be peace. Now, we have to be sure we understand that that's not something that just happens in a moment of time. I can't just say to you, think peaceful thoughts right now, and it's kind of like taking a pill, and all of a sudden you will be peaceful. But it's something that happens over time as we are steadfast in thinking those thoughts. Isaiah reminds us in 26.3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Now, if I'm remembering who God is, His power, His goodness, His love, that's going to help me to make it through whatever challenges there may come in my life, because those challenges are certainly not a surprise to Him. This piece we're talking about is a mindset. It's a way of thinking that comes over time. And that's the reason we love for children to memorize the Scripture, because that's a big step toward meditating. And if we meditate on God's Word, that helps us to know that peace of Christ that should rule in our hearts. He works through the Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we think about what He has said, that helps us to make it, whatever the challenge may be. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Now, mind controlled by the Spirit would be thinking what kind of thoughts? Well, maybe 1 Corinthians 13 type of love. Love is patient, kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. Maybe the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Perhaps the Beatitudes. Perhaps we would be thinking about the application of the Beatitudes in our lives. There are many things in Scripture that we can think about. We would never run out of things about which to meditate so that over time, God's thoughts become our thoughts, and then the enemy is not able to bombard us with those anxious thoughts. It's so simple, and we hear about it all the time in church, Bible studies, but it's not easy, and that's the reason we want to put the emphasis on it this morning. How do you get your mind under the control of the Holy Spirit? You do exactly what we read in Colossians 3. And you can read the entire chapter. You set your heart on things above, on the character that's going to be lived out there, that we are to be living out here. And then you start putting off those old troubling thoughts, and you get a new attitude in your heart, and you start putting on those new thoughts, thoughts of 
victory and thoughts of strength and thoughts of encouragement. And I continue to build a hard drive of thoughts in my heart as I meditate and memorize those things that God has given us. Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. The house payment is past due. The car has broken down out on the highway. The epitodontist has determined that the children all are going to need braces. And you're telling me be anxious for nothing? Well, some quick principles from Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's the heart and the mind that cause our anxious thoughts. And the devil likes to give our hearts and minds plenty to think about. It's always worse in the evening, it seems. But the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You have to be in Christ Jesus. This is going to function in your life. Now, the heart is not simply the emotions, but the central headquarters, the command post of your personality. It's the central organ of your soul. And the thoughts would just refer to the mind. The mind would refer to the thoughts, where we think our thoughts. So it's the heart. if it's the heart and mind that must be guarded, they must be the culprits. And they are. And they quickly get out of control, as we said, especially in the evening. And they won't let you sleep because they are bombarding you with possibilities and imaginations and things that might happen. And you start thinking about things. Well, what if this happened, then I would do this. But then if I did that, what if this happened? And then you start thinking, what about those tests I had the other day? What if I don't get a good report from the doctor? And what if I'm not able to keep my own doctor? And what if my new affordable health plan costs twice as much with a higher deductible? What am I going to do? What if my insurance is canceled? And so the heart and the mind are just kicking it back and forth all night long. And I don't have the peace of Christ. I have uh, restlessness. I have troubling thoughts. Now, I'm not suggesting that there won't be times when the enemy attacks in that way and times that there wouldn't be reason for you to be concerned about some things. What I'm suggesting is if we're willing to do what God tells us in the Scripture, we're going to be much better equipped to handle those things that come along in life that we didn't anticipate and that we didn't want. 2 Corinthians, familiar passage, chapter 10, verse 5, casting down imaginations and every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, Satan will use things like false teaching and all the macroevolution and we came from the apes and all those kind of things, but he'll also use those anxious thoughts that relate to you and to me personally. 
So we want to be ready for both. Casting down imaginations and everything raised up against the knowledge of God. The more a Christian meditates on Scripture, the more the better he will be equipped to cast down imaginations. Well, we have the peace of God. God has a solution for anxious thoughts. In everything, let your request be made known to God and do that by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. That comes right out of that passage that we have been considering. In everything, let your request be made known to God. Now, it's one thing to worry, but it's quite a different thing to pray. And I can tell you that prayer is much more effective than worry. Another section, the peace of Christ, worship. We're going to see in this little passage in Philippians 4, three distinct components that need to be in place. We specialize generally in one of those components, but there are three. And we want to talk about them a little bit. The first is prayer. And that word is the broad general term that's used for prayer in Scripture, and it includes worship and adoration. The Bible exposition commentary helps us to know what that word means. The word prayer is the general word for making requests known to God. It carries the idea of adoration, devotion, and worship. Whenever we find ourselves worrying, our first action ought to be to get along with God and worship Him. Adoration is what we need. We must see the greatness and majesty of God. We must realize that He is big enough to solve our problems. Too often we rush into His presence and hastily tell Him our needs when we ought to approach His throne calmly and in deepest reverence. The first step in right praying is adoration. Well, end of quote. They're talking about that word, prosuke, prayer, but it includes some other things other than what we normally just would think about when we say the word prayer. Normally when we pray, we begin with our problems, don't we? Because that's when we normally pray. Unless you're in the habit of prayer, uh, most Americans would pray whenever some problems come up. But I'm suggesting this morning that we begin our prayer time with worship of the blessed and glorious, holy and sovereign God, whose love is perfect, whose wisdom is infinite, whose power is sovereign, and whose character is good. We've said many times, if you believe those things about God, all the bases are covered. He knows what's happening in our lives. He knows how He wants to use that for our sanctification, to draw us closer to Christ. And when is it in our lives when we really start looking to Christ? We've often said, in a time of adversity. So this could be another missing ingredient in prayer. We would say worship. Most people pray when they get in some kind of a bind. What is their focus? Themselves. Getting out of the bind. What part does God play? Well, he would simply be the means that I need to help me, and prayer is the way that I convince him that I need to get some help right now. Now, there's nothing wrong with crying out to God when you have some trouble. But if we make a habit 
of worshiping God in our daily prayer, we're going to be more and more aware of who He is and what He does, as stated in the Scripture, and how His love is going to be seen in the outworking of the challenges that I meet in my life. Well, before all the asking, we need to worship. How can I do that? I can't go down to church, to the church building, every time I need a favor from God. Let's consider that. The word worship comes from two old English words, worth and ship. Worth has to do with significance, excellence, or importance. And ship relates to quality or value as in friendship or fellowship, the quality of being a good friend or a good fellow. So worship is all about declaring God's worth, proclaiming that He is worthy. And a biblical term for that proclamation would be praise, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. How do we worship? How do we make that proclamation of praise? Many church people think we only worship in connection with music. So they ask, do you have traditional worship or contemporary worship? And what they really want to know is what kind of music do you have? Now music is an important part of worship as we express our hearts in voice and song to the Lord, but it's not the most important part and certainly not the major part of worship. There are some other things. That's the first thing. We worship by speaking or singing. That involves the heart and the voice. We sing praise to God. But we also worship by listening. And that would be the ear. Here's something God has said. Is it worth listening to? Well, yes. If God has said it, it's something worth listening to. That involves the mind when I hear a sermon or I listen to a Bible study. And that's when we receive a message from God through His Word, directed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, if the truth is being spoken from His Word, and it is very much worth doing. But many people would think it's not worth much. It's not even worth going to church, particularly on a day like this. This must be a bunch of hardcore Christians today to come out on a cold, rainy day like this, and we praise God for that. Romans 12, 1, 12.1 suggests that we worship by doing with our bodies. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Yes, young people, it does matter as a Christian what you do with your bodies. And it was with our bodies that we are God's hands and feet upon this earth. And so we do things that are going to encourage other people. And that would be a part of our worship, especially encouraging the body of Christ. What if we have all music and speaking in song and not much doing in action? 
Well, then we would probably have a heavy dose of emotionalism, usually shallow in doctrine. But what if we were all listening to the preaching, but very little praise and not too much action? That might come into the category of dead orthodoxy, or dead heresy, if that's what we're hearing. Or what if we specialize in doing for others, but we neglect the Scriptures, and evangelism, and discipleship? Uh, We're just trying to reach out and help others. We're following Christ. But we might say that would be the social gospel. And there would be some things missing. The new birth, for instance. The shed blood of Christ that saves us from our sins. So we need all of those things in a balance. What does the New Testament say about worship? How and when? It doesn't say a lot about the how, but we do see some passages in the book of Acts, chapter 2. The church is breaking forth here. Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. In the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayer. And that describes their worship. But it goes on. Verse 46, chapter 2 of Acts. And they continually, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So they're worshiping God in the temple. They're worshiping God at home. They're worshiping God as they're going and as they're doing things. And praise is a great part of that worship. Now, praise is important in worship. What observations would we make about praise in our day? More people believe in God than praise Him. More people participate in organized religion than praise God. More people pray to God than praise Him. And more people receive benefits from God than praise Him. Do you have a special time of praise in your home? That's a good part of family worship. I know many of you do. Praise often goes lacking except in a praise and worship service. So why don't we praise Him? It's so easy to do. So simple, we should say. The worship in the New Testament has moved away from being centralized, ritualized, institutionalized, and now you can praise God and worship Him anytime, anywhere. You don't have to have the priest offering a blood sacrifice for your sins. You are the temple, the priest, and the sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You are the temple. And you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You are the priest. Christ is our high priest. And we've already seen in Romans 12.1 that we're to present our body a living sacrifice. What else? In Hebrews 13.15, Through Him, then, Christ, let us offer continually a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. 
Now there is the singing and praising God, and there is the doing of God as well, as we do things for other people and as we share. What else? 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And in Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Is it any wonder that our prayer life may be pathetic if that's the kind of worship we're supposed to offer along with our prayer? Now, did you get the way the word that worship is defined in the New Testament? Reflect the glory of God in the way you live your life. Do everything you do in Jesus' name. Give thanks to God in everything. That may sound pretty good, but are you telling me that even passing the collection plate in church is worship? Well, Paul is speaking here and he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And check out this verse. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory through Christ Jesus. That last verse ought to take care of some of those anxious thoughts that the enemy bombards us with. Now here's the way John Piper suggested that we define worship and that we uh, describe worship. Now keep in mind that in the Old Testament there were very detailed, very specific instructions down to the clothes that the priests wear and all kinds of things connected with worship in the Old Testament. But John Piper says, My conclusion then is that in the New Testament there is a stunning indifference to the outward forms and places of worship. And there is at the same time a radical intensification of worship as an inward spiritual experience that has no bounds and pervades all of life. These emphases were recaptured in the Reformation and came to clear expression in the Puritan wing of the Reformed tradition. Well, that would be the prayer that includes worship, adoration, praise, all those things. Then we come to the one we're the most familiar with, which would be supplication. And we don't have supplication on the screen here because supplication is what we know all about. That would be when we get down to specifics because in supplication we just make known our request to God. But there's another very important factor when we are giving our supplication. If you've got a fine ribeye steak on the grill, sizzling, and you take your salt shaker or maybe some seasoning salt and you just sprinkle a little bit on that steak, it's going to be a lot better when the final product comes out there. And we want to sprinkle our prayers with some thanksgiving, the other, another missing ingredient. If I'm chafing against God and His providence in my life, I'm probably not going to have a very grateful heart. But what if I'm in a terrible mess? Loneliness, sickness, painfulness, uselessness, bitterness, sleeplessness, weakness, and bleakness. Because it looks like I'm just not going anywhere in my life. It's going to be very difficult to thank God for those kinds of conditions or situations. 
But whatever the problem is, if I've been thinking about who God is and meditating on His Word, whatever the problem is, there are many things that I can thank Him for. I can thank Him for His holiness and His righteousness and His justice that in the final analysis, He's always going to do the right thing. I mean, I can depend on everybody on this earth to do the right thing, but God always will do the right thing. And then there's the atonement of Christ and the new birth and the forgiveness of my sins and the privilege of prayer and all His divine promises and the fact that His grace is sufficient for me and all of His benefits that He gives us, redemption in Christ, loving kindness and tender mercies that satisfies my mouth with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. That sounds pretty good, but what if I don't feel like an eagle? What if I feel pretty badly? What do I do then? I just don't feel thankful. Well, the world is not too thankful either. In fact, sometimes they would be so discontent with God and what He did or what He didn't do that they would be bitter. And we don't want to fall into that line of thinking. It begins with something like this. Thank you, Lord. This is really great. But now, could you do it again even better? And then next, that was pretty nice, Lord, but what have you done for me lately? And then, you could easily do it, Lord. Why don't you give it to me right now? And then finally, the Lord helps those who help themselves. I'll get it myself. And then I can thank myself if it's something that's within my power. No need for prayer and thanksgiving. It doesn't work anyway, many people would think. Well, it doesn't work as a formula. It's God who works. And remember, He works according to His ways, outlined in the Scripture. Well, the Bible didn't say we need to feel thankful. It said we need to be thankful and give thanks in everything. It's simply a choice of the will. We said many times, act your way into feeling. And when you don't feel thankful, that's probably when you need to be thankful the most. Because the focus may be on myself and how badly I feel. And when I get the focus on God and all of His promises and everything that He has done for us and is going to do, that takes the focus off of me and puts it on a sovereign and holy God and all He has to give. And he says, He spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him freely give us all things, all things we need? So with thanksgiving, I become more God-centered and less self-centered, and that's an important part of sanctification. I ought to thank Him for everything He has done in my life to make me become like Him. And for those times when I ran out of my own energy and my own resources, and I had to call on Him, and I was drawn closer to Him. So it says a person with an ungrateful heart finds difficulty in giving thanks for anything. But a person with a grateful heart finds much for which to express thanks, even for the food that they sit down to eat. A godly farmer was once asked to dine with a prominent gentleman in his county. The table was set with sumptuous fare, but the blessing was omitted. So the farmer bowed his head and silently thanked the Lord for the food, just as was his custom at home. His host, a proud man, ridiculed his faith 
That's old-fashioned, and it's not a custom now for well-educated people to pray before they eat. The farmer answered that with him it was customary, but some of those on his farm never prayed over their food. Aha, then, said the gentleman, they are sensible and enlightened. Who are they? My pigs, the farmer answered. Well, if our hearts are filled with thanksgiving, that goes a long way in protecting us from the pig mentality. And it's also good for healing whatever ails us. Because if you don't get healed physically, you still might get healed emotionally and spiritually, and a refreshed spirit will help you carry a tired body or a sick body. And gratitude, we've said often, is a Kevlar vest that will protect you from those ideas the enemy is firing at us, those discouraging and depressing thoughts. Well, not only has God given us a solution for anxious thoughts, He's given us a promise to go with it. promise for anxious thoughts, His peace will guard your heart and your mind. Your peace will guard, his peace will guard your heart and your mind. For reo, the word guard means to post a sentinel. Uh, God is going to be guarding your heart through the peace that he gives you in Christ Jesus. Paul never says that God will change your circumstances. He doesn't say he'll change things in your life. Uh, He doesn't even say that He's going to make those people that are mistreating you start treating you better. But He does say that inside you can have that peace that only God can give. Those thoughts may be unruly. They may be difficult to control. But God will give you that sense of togetherness and a sense of completeness and a sense of wholeness. If... I am thinking about those things as a habit pattern of my life that we've discussed. And then finally, the last thing, the promise for anxious thoughts works in and through Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Think of it. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 1.3. Whatever happens to you is the secret will of God, and we are instructed to thank Him for it. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Grace, the power and motivation to do God's revealed will, comes through Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.1 And finally, you have to be in Christ Jesus for the Holy Spirit to apply any of this in your life. Philippians 1.6 being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. In Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Are you in Christ Jesus this afternoon? Have you come to him to ask for forgiveness of your sin, to Commit your life to Him, to invite Him to be a part of your life, to praise Him and worship Him and bring to Him all of the things that would be concerning you to cast your burden upon Him because He cares for you. We're going to pray in just a moment. And if you've not committed your life to Christ or if there's something going on in your life 
that you know is not pleasing to Him, this would be the time to confess and repent in silence of your own heart. Commit your life to Him. If you know that you have Christ and you're a believer, would you like to see a vast improvement in your prayer life? Learn how to worship, praise, thank God, and then begin your prayer time with worship time. Now, we know a lot about worship, and we've worshiped the Lord today. But I'm talking about in your personal and private time of prayer, and then in your family devotion time. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes I read the Bible and I realize how much I don't know about it. And then, when I see something I do know, I realize how much I don't do about what I know. But I thank You for Your grace that forgives me when I fail to do the things I ought to do or do the things I shouldn't do. And I thank You, Lord, for shedding Your blood that we might be in right relationship with You even though we have broken Your divine law many times. Thank You that You have made every provision for us on this earth, for our anxious thoughts, for our sicknesses and our diseases, for our death, and for the resurrection from the dead, and an eternity with You in heaven. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who does not, know you or who is not sure that they are in right relationship with you, perhaps because of the burden of guilt. I pray that this might be the time when they would come to you in repentance and true saving faith. That's the greatest thing for which we have to be thankful, and we thank you for that. Lord, we're grateful to you for the Scriptures and the encouragement they give and help us to take advantage of all of those promises and those solutions to the problems of life that are given there. Lord, we ask now through your Holy Spirit that you would guide us as we pray together. And we ask, Lord, that you would lay upon the hearts of our men who will lead the things about which we need to pray. And we ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.